Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, we are back after an extended hiatus. You know, some would say we are like the Bundesliga in that we take a bit of a winter break, but we are back to save Christmas, to save Hanukkah, to save Kwanzaa, whatever holiday you might be celebrating. We hope you've had a joyous, festive time with your families, with your friends, with your loved ones, but we are happy to be back in your ears to discuss everything in relation to the Premier League Boxing Day festive fixtures, 10 games in two days. We're here to digest all of it. We're here to digest Leicester and United playing to an entertaining draw. Big Sam coming in and getting another historic point at Anfield. Jose Mourinho's Spurs continuing to fall down the table. And of course, we are going to begin with a monumental win at the Emirates for Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. And I am joined by two men who probably could partner a center-back survival duo for Big Sam Allardyce in the Premier League. It is Caleb Rhodes. Hello, I am 6'2", so that's got to be worth something. And Nathan Strauss. I'm only 5'10", so probably not the future for me. But lads, we have to get into things. There is no better place to begin than the Emirates Stadium, a game that we watched together on a Zoom call. It was Arsenal 3, Chelsea 1, and a game that defied just about everything in regards to form. The team sheets, when the team sheets were released, we were skeptical that Arsenal could get anything out of this game, especially considering that we were seriously talking about them being relegation contenders. Mikel Arteta proved us wrong. The Brazilian contingent of Arsenal, the likes of Willian, David Luiz, and Gabriel, were sidelined due to coronavirus concerns, so that allowed youngsters Emil Smith-Rowe, Gabriel Martinelli. Mikel Arteta went with youth, and at the end of the day, Arsenal outworked Frank Lampard's Chelsea team to a 3-1 win at the Emirates. Nathan, no longer in 15th, you're up into 14th place, out of the relegation conversation for now. How good did this win feel? It felt fantastic, both on a sort of personal level, but also on a, you know, it totally changed my outlook on the club. And it's kind of weird because you think about it, Arsenal's worst run of form, basically in the history of the Premier League, was bookended by wins against United and now Chelsea. I'm not entirely convinced that Arteta did too, too much uh, this game, except his team selection definitely deserves praise. Obviously, Aubameyang's still out injured. Um, he did make the bench, but... Starting uh, an attacking three of Saka, Smith-Rowe, and Martinelli with Lacazette up top really made the difference. Smith-Rowe is someone who was rated really highly, has had some injury problems and some loans. And in this game, he had more shots on target than Willian had all season. He also has more goal involvements in all competitions this season than Willian has, despite playing a fifth of Willian's minutes. Um, with four goal involvements now. Again, Gabriel Martinelli, I don't want to place like all of my hopes on someone who's younger than I am and someone who is just coming back from injury, but he looks like the real deal, um, as he did last year. He's incredibly fast with the ball, um, and he makes really intelligent runs, and he's a very technical player as well. And as always, Bukayo Saka really thrived. It shouldn't be overlooked that uh, I was pretty upset when I saw that Granit Xhaka was back in the team, 
because I have been increasingly fed up with him and his hard man act. He did play incredibly well and scored an absolute screamer of a free kick. And all in all, it was a, a very complete performance, although a complete performance perhaps for 80 minutes until Chelsea managed to claw one back and almost clawed a second one back via the penalty spot. But solid victory, a much needed victory for Mikel Arteta. And now they advance with a chance to pick up some more points in a battle of 15th versus 16th on Tuesday afternoon. Okay, here's the thing about this game. I give Arsenal credit for getting the win. I honestly don't give Arteta that much credit. Like, he had to put out a lineup almost out of necessity, missing so many players. I mean, Abemiang was still injured. The only big choice, I would say, was to, you know, not play Pepe. Um, this team was, like, arguably, like, on paper, worse than even the Europa League 11s that they put out. But at the end of the day, all good things from Arsenal who took advantage from, and I'm sure Nick has some words about this, some just awful coaching on the Chelsea team. I worry, though, and I think, Nathan, you're, you're often a good example of this, of Arsenal fans like extrapolating um, way too much from one-off games. It's totally possible that like tomorrow or never, you lose to Brighton and then like struggle like Liverpool did against West Brom. So like, I don't think you're remotely out of the woods yet. You're still at least, you know, 20 points from being safe from relegation. So I think this was a necessary one. This is an important win, but there's still like a lot Arsenal need to do to actually like build on it, especially when Willian in theory, you know, will be back and Arteta won't be forced to bench like objectively probably the worst player this team has had this year. Yeah, I think... You're right, Caleb, but I also think it would be easy enough for Mikel Arteta to not pick the youth team and essentially go with some more. There were established players on the bench that he could have gone with, like he did in the game against Manchester City in the Carabao Cup. So I think we have to praise him for the fact that he was just like, you know what, we're going to go with the players like Emil Smith-Rowe and Gabriel Martinelli who are willing to work off the ball. I thought Smith-Rowe, I know a lot of people's man of the match was Bukayo Saka, and I thought he played exceptionally well, Saka. But for me watching Emil Smith-Rowe do the work off the ball as well as on the ball like Nathan was alluding to with you know him being far more productive than William has in any in any game for Arsenal they were the complete antithesis to Chelsea on the day you know Chelsea looked like they they thought that they could rock up to the Emirates and win this game in their sleep and the young guns of Arsenal were like you know what listen like we may not be in the greatest form right now however you know, we are still a team that should be competing way higher than 15th in the league. And in order to do that, we actually have to put in the work, grit and grind, and try and come up with, you know, some sort of performance. And it's not like Arsenal played spectacular football at all. You could argue that, you know, the Tierney penalty wasn't actually a penalty because there was very minimal contact from Reese James. You know, the Xhaka free kick is a one-off. And then the Bukayo Saka goal, you could argue whether or not he meant it. But at the end of the day, Arsenal totally outworked Frank Lampard's Chelsea team. And that is the thing that distinguishes them from the Blues in the end. It's sort of what we've been calling for, and not just us, but everyone has been calling for for a while. You know, having some sort of meritocracy where players can earn their place in the first team, especially when you're struggling, um, could very well be maybe not a complete panacea for Arsenal's woes, but certainly a partial solution. Um, Although, Caleb, I agree that Arsenal are by no means out of the woods. But we should probably talk about how poorly Frank Lampard managed this game. 
because as well as Arsenal played, they were coming up against a Chelsea side that were basically handicapped from the start by their manager, as they have been so often this season, despite their relatively impressive Champions League and league position. Uh, Frank Lampard, everyone knows at this point that we're not the biggest fans of him. Do you think that this game might have been the turning point for some Chelsea fans who might have otherwise been inclined to back him? Listen, gentlemen, <laughs> Chelsea have taken three points from four games. Timo Werner is still playing on the wing. In fact, he was substituted after 45 minutes in this game. Kai Havertz looks like a shadow of his former self. The church is open once again. <laughs> Reverend Govindan has taken his, his place at the altar, and he is welcoming all comers in the church of Frank Lampard is a fraud. The church of fraud part. Because yes, Nathan, I think this was the turning point for all of the non-believers to see <laughs> that Frank Lampard is in fact not the prince that was promised for Chelsea Football Club, especially after spending over 250 million pounds in the summer to be four points worse off than they were last season and outside of the top four. But Caleb, I will let you take it away with the more finer details of the Frank Lampard experience this season at Chelsea. <laughs> the finer details. I mean, essentially, he made some of the strangest substitution decisions at halftime that I've seen. He continues to play Werner on the left wing where his confidence is being sapped and clearly he plays much better through the middle because as Nick, you've mentioned before, he really chooses favorites. He loves Tammy Abraham. He loves Mason Mount. He loves Reese James. But the problem is he took off Werner for no real reason, not that Abraham was offering anything. He's playing Pulisic on the wrong flank, despite the fact that I think Pulisic was probably one of the best players on the field for either team yesterday. But the biggest move, honestly, was him taking off Kovacic, who was the only element of that Chelsea midfield who seemed to really offer anything in terms of driving the ball forward. Conte, I thought, had a very off-color game. Mason Mount honestly could have had a goal, but otherwise was relatively anonymous. And brought on Jorginho, who is slow and plodding and didn't add dynamism to a Chelsea team that honestly struggled to have any possession. Lo and behold, they really, really struggled thereafter. And by the time he brought on Havertz for Conte, it was a little bit of too little too late. Honestly, the Abraham goal really flatters a performance that otherwise was was quite terrible. And so, as you said, from the beginning, he hamstrung this team. And it's the fact that he continues to hold on to essentially the players who he didn't buy that is, I think, holding this team back, ultimately. Frankly, their job doesn't get any easier because, you know, just less than 48 hours after losing to Arsenal, they play a team that I would say is twice the team Arsenal is right now in Aston Villa. You know, Chelsea are currently in eighth place right now. Admittedly, only seven points off of the lead. They're in eighth place in a terrible uh, run of form. Their only win in their last five games has been against West Ham, and they've lost to Everton and Wolves as, along with Arsenal. So he's got a real, a really hard job to do now. And unlike last year, you know, with the transfer ban and the success that he had with some of the youth players, he now has a much harder job of integrating the incredibly expensive signings. It, it's a bad look when you have 90 million pound Kai Havertz on the bench or 80 million pound Kai Havertz on the bench um, who can barely make an impact. And, you know, the players that he he trusts in just aren't getting the job done. So big week for them. I would agree, Nathan. It is a massive, potentially season-defining week for them. And I just want to get on to the thing that really disappointed me about this Chelsea performance. And it was that Frank Lampard 
post-match interview that I sent to you guys yesterday where he essentially came out and he said, you know, this result is something for the players to think about, alluding that like they have to motivate themselves for this game. They weren't giving the effort uh, that was necessary in order for them to win the football match. And my and I went back and I, I was interested to see if this was just like a one-off tact that he took or if this is a constant theme with Lampard's management. And I went back to the loss at Wolves and I went back and I went back and I listened to the loss away at Everton. And the sound bites are essentially the same. The issue that I have with it is that that isn't real leadership. If you are complaining to the press that, you know, your team isn't putting in the effort, what you really should be doing is that if you can communicate to the press or like the media that your team needs to be putting in more effort, then something is really awry in the fact that you can't communicate that same message to your players. So I think Frank Lampard needs to take a real serious look at himself, a real serious look at his team sheet, and make some risky decisions. You know, like, is it time to drop Tammy Abraham and put Timo Werner up front permanently? Is it time to drop Timo Werner for a little bit, who's gone now 10 games without a goal? That is a serious run, and it has, like, Fernando Torres, Alvaro Morata, Chelsea striker curse vibes going on there. Shevchenko. And so I... Shevchenko, you know, a, a myriad of other plays, players, strikers that Chelsea have signed that haven't worked out for them. And I would hate to see Timo Werner cast in that mold. So I think it's time for Lampard to show some actual, you know, grow some cojones, show some actual, you know, bona fide leadership and not just rely on the fact that he thinks that like his players should be, quote unquote, giving more effort. It's a little bit bad when, you know, you take credit for when the performances are good and then blame the players when the performances are bad. And I think there are other, you know, options he has. For instance, Reese James had a poor game today. And I think someone like Azpilicueta could really help instill perhaps more of a... And I think, not to interrupt you, but Reese yeah. James was coming off what was potentially, what Chelsea thought was potentially a serious knee injury. So mm -hmm. Lampard rushed both him and Chilwell back for this game, which proved to be the wrong decision. Yeah, and also I'll point out that you know, a lot of Chelsea's good form was down to really strong defensive play, but especially sort of for the first time in a few years, good goalkeeping play. And in the last few games, Mendy has increasingly looked like a kind of mid-table Ligue goalkeeper. And so that's another thing to, to watch out for. Yeah, and I can't help but think that if Frank Lampard were a foreign manager, he would have been getting a lot more criticism up until this point but he's oh, absolutely of, he absolutely sort of, he's sort of ridden the coattails of being a, a club and country legend at this point um and it looks like he might be a little bit out of his depth but do we want to move on to some of the the other games from saturday absolutely nathan why don't you take us away oh i'm taking us away okay so in the opener for the boxing day slate of games Manchester United looked more like the Manchester United that we know and love here at Corner Kick, dropping points once again to a <laughs> love. <laughs> I think no, no, I no, certainly no, do. The Manchester team we love when they drop points. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they they looked like the team that we know and love, as in we appreciate it when they, they look they like this. Do poorly. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Leicester two, United two, in a poor performance for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's men who despite this performance are still only four or five points off of Liverpool at the top of the table. Yeah, I just think that if United are going to win anything of note this season, they need to really improve their defensive fundamentals. 
because the the first goal that they conceded came from Bruno Fernandes giving away the ball at the edge of the box. And that's something that can't happen if United want to have any consistency in form this season. And we know that their performances on the whole have been inconsistent in general. But if they're going to get any sort of any sort of competitivity going in the league, and if, if they really want to challenge Liverpool for the title, then they have to root out those defensive mistakes. Because they look electric going forward. They absolutely look lethal going forward. Rashford has regained a lot of his form from the end of last season. Martial looks like he's really been the piece that they needed to link up the play up front. And Fernandes has been statistically one of the best players in the Premier League all year long. But if he's giving away, you know, silly errors on the edge of the box that lets Harvey Barnes score easy goals, then that does not bode well for Manchester United's chances in the league this season. Also, I I think what this game showed is that McTominay and Fred, while being a serviceable midfield pairing, is still not amazing. And I know McTominay has, you know, had a good season. He was really good against Leeds. But Tielemans and Ndidi just honestly dominated them the entire game. Tielemans in particular was insane. Man U should make some changes going forward. First of all, give Cavani the keys to this offense. Okay, Cavani has saved so many points for this team. And at some point, he should be rewarded with a start. Also, once again, I think you have to find a way to give Pogba time in this team. Um, And I'm not sure whether you drop McTominay or Fred, but I think against a Leicester team that is very well drilled, that played in another 4-2-3-1 that lined up exactly with them, in most areas of the pitch, Manchester United couldn't really match up. And it was only these kind of moments of brilliance that from Fernandez that saved them, even though it should be noted, Fernandez was responsible for a giveaway that led to Leicester's first goal. This was not a great performance from Manu, but I think Ole does have options. He has options, but it's still kind of shocking to me that he went with Victor Lindelof at right back when he hadn't played right back at the very least since his first year in Portugal. He has played right back so rarely that transfer marks didn't even have it listed as one of his positions. And you know that with their encyclopedic knowledge of where each player plays in every game, that's truly shocking, especially when you have players like Axel Twanzebe on the bench who ended up coming on. You also have guys like Alex Tellish who could probably fill in at right back. That was a very strange decision. And clearly the center back pairing of Bialy and Lindelof and Maguire, the two of those three, that's just not good enough to, to win or to compete at any major level. Although Maguire is one of two players to have played every single minute in the Premier League since the start of last season. Their ability does not necessarily equal um, ability. Yeah, and I guess for Leicester City, they're still in a pretty good, comfortable position in the table. However, their record against... I just think their record against the big teams this season hasn't been astounding. They went away to Liverpool and they got kind of clobbered. This game against Manchester United, I thought they, they probably, in the end, deserved to lose had it not been for United's defensive failings i don't want to say they're still punching above their weight because i think they're a good side but i also am unconvinced that they're bona fides for making the top four this season they seem like i feel like every team in like the top half of the table has at one point this year been in like second place Leicester, and maybe they have been in second place so this could be a really bad take but i think they're the only team that's going to be like very consistently between like fifth to seventh place in the table and they're going to finish somewhere between fifth to seventh place um and so I don't think we're going to see them hit electric heights this year. But at the same time, I don't think we're going to be sort of teased 
um, with the idea that they're going to be a Champions League team like we were last year for them to kind of throw it away in the last five or 10 games. Lads, shall we move on to Anfield, where, you know, since we have uh, last met around the virtual roundtable, there has been a massive return to Premier League football in the form of Big Sam Allardyce. Slavin Bilic is no more at West Bromwich Albion. Big Sam has been installed to help them in their push for survival this season and potentially the sale of the club. You didn't hear that here. But it is West Bromwich Albion 1, Liverpool 1. The Baggies secure another point away at a perennial championship contender. Nathan Strauss, was this just a classic Big Sam Allardyce performance? Has he saved Christmas for West Bromwich Albion fans? I think he has saved Christmas for West Brom fans, but I will say that this was a terrible day for Liverpool in more ways than one. Um, I think the most concerning thing from this result is Joel Matip going back off injured despite having an assist and end up and being man of the match through his 60 minutes. Um, Liverpool seemed to have just recovered from their center back injury crisis partially. And they now look to be set without um, a, a natural center back over the age of 23. Big Sam teams do what big Sam teams are going to do, which is shit house and defend, 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 bring on a second striker late in the game and score goals from set pieces. And lo and behold, that's exactly what West Brom did. Former Arsenal youth player Semi Ajay was the one who made the difference. But in truth, Liverpool looked to have switched off a little bit in the second half. Despite the, the better efforts, the best efforts of Jurgen Klopp's men, they just couldn't seem to really get, get a second goal. Uh, and in fact, West Brom actually could have scored twice uh, in, that, in that second half. Um, but despite being outpossessed 78% to 22%, you know, big Sam is back when you see numbers like that, it ends up with the points being shared at Anfield. Nick, I, I, I'm curious what, what your takeaways are from this game. I mean, it was just all a little bit shit, right? The, or the way that big Sam came and set up was a little bit shit. Like you, we, you thought for a second there that Liverpool were going to romp to a three nil lead at halftime. However, that was not the case. And that ended up being in big Sam's favor. However, I also think that in the second half, Liverpool just got so frustrated by the way that, that West Brom, who I thought defended really well. I think that Liverpool just got really frustrated with the way that West Brom were kind of cutting off their rhythm, cutting off their circulation were making it really difficult for them to get any sort of consistency or fluidity going in the game, that <laughs> it just really took a toll on them mentally. And Andy Robertson said it best in the post-match when he said, we really just like went totally slack in the game. And I wouldn't even say that they went totally slack. I would say they just let go of the rope entirely. And for me, this was the kind of game where you could see that Liverpool's injury concerns extend all the way to the bench and that, they have really no one that they can bring on who is fit enough to make an impact on the field. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain was the first real you know, sub of choice for Jurgen Klopp today. He's played 10 minutes of football in the past six months, and he's definitely not you know, fully fit to make an impact. Divock Origi, who has one foot out the door at the club, was you know shuffled on in like the 85th minute to try and sneak a goal in and that really that when Divakariki when Divakariki is is coming onto the pitch at this stage you know things are looking dire i just think that this was a bit of a a naive performance from liverpool in that 
you need to pick up wins at home, especially this season, in gimmies like this one. Like the first 25 minutes of this game, Liverpool should be, should have been over the hill and far away. However, Big Sam did what Big Sam does, and that is you know keep the game close enough so that in the late stages of the game, he can frustrate, and frustrate he did, uh, evidenced by the fact that even Jurgen Klopp picked up a booking on the day. Yeah, so I wonder whether this game, you know, aside from the injuries limiting him, demonstrates, you know, one of the weaknesses of Klopp in general, which we've talked about before, which is his, he's not good at making substitutions. And I understand that, yeah, he didn't have all the players he wanted, but bringing on, you know, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, like near the 80th minute, and then Divacaridi in like the 85th minute, was that really, like, could, could he have brought those players on 10 minutes earlier? Could he have pushed for the kill earlier in the game? I don't know. It seemed like, yes, they didn't have all the players, but still, Minamino was there. Even Shakiri was on the bench. Um, Milner could have shored things up in midfield if he really wanted to tamp down. So it's not like they were lacking options. And so I wonder whether this, this is a good example of Klopp failing to sort of address issues on the pitch when things aren't quite going his way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think even a second goal would have really just killed off West Brom. Because I think West Brom really, realistically, only had one goal in them the entire game, if that. I think that you're right. I think that I've often been critical as well of Jurgen Klopp's substitutions. I think, uh, as we saw in the Spurs game, he's a little bit concerned about, you know, ruining the rhythm. However, Liverpool weren't weren't fluid at all in this game. Oh, right, exactly. <laughs> There's no rhythm so, to disrupt. Like, like West Brom out, had more shots on goal than Liverpool like it wasn't like even in that first 25 minutes that Liverpool were like peppering Johnston at all it was just that they were overwhelming them with the possession but they still weren't creating anything and so I think like bolder action even like giving Salah the hook for Minamino who had a good game you know a week or two ago could have been a potentially positive move but there was this weird sense of like stasis yeah and I think the real the real shame is that we saw last week against Crystal Palace in the 7-0 what Liverpool look like when they take all of their chances in a game, and it's devastating. And in this game, in the first you know half an hour or so, they took one of their you know maybe four really good chances in the game, and they allowed West Brom to come back. And I, Nathan, that I want you to to tell the corner kick fam about that stat that you came up with about Big Sam in his recent trips to Anfield. But this is also something that, you know, Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp and the team should really know ahead of time. And the fact that, hey, like Big Sam is essentially telegraphing his game plan to you from minute one. And in order to counter that, we really have to go for the kill in the first 25 to 30 minutes of these games or else we're really going to suffer at the back end of it. So the stat that Nick was referencing there, Sam Allardyce has now won more points at Anfield since April 2017 than all big six teams combined. And a third of all points won by visiting teams in that time frame have been won by teams managed by Sam Allardyce, which is kind of ridiculous because it's a long enough period for it to not be just fluke results. Like for whatever reason, Sam Allardyce just loves playing at Anfield. So you kind of knew exactly what you were going to get into with this game. And lo and behold, that's more points dropped for Liverpool, who still haven't lost a game in the league since that 7-2 defeat at Villa. But the lead at the top of the table is only three points right now. So definitely a closer race than I think you would like, Nick. Yeah, and that's my big issue is that <clears throat> this week we saw a lot of our rivals drop points. You know, Spurs dropped points. Chelsea lost. 
Man United dropped points. And this was a real chance to start creating at least some distinct separation at the top of the table. And Big Sam, uh, Big uh, Big Sam Alardici came in and played, you know, that Catanaccio style of shithousery and really stunk up the joint when Liverpool should have been expecting it and killed off the game way sooner. Maybe we should transition to another honestly rather dull game, another 1-1 draw in Spurs versus Wolves. Spurs took a very early lead. They scored 58 seconds into the game. And as Nick said before we started the pause, uh, started the podcast, they immediately tried to to shut the game down in about minute two. It Um, was incredible. Is there anything worse for your viewing pleasure than a Mourinho team scoring early on? Dude, a Mourinho... (laughs) <laughs> a Mourinho team scoring early on is like the dude it's it's it probably is like I can't compare it to anything else except like disappointing sex <laughs> where it's just like it all happens like way too you're not prepared for it, it like happens way too quickly in the end like everyone is left disappointed and I think that's exactly what happened here it's an interesting metaphor I wasn't expecting it for sure. But Nathan, you know, you're someone who is skeptical of the Mourinho experience at Tottenham. Caleb and I were riding high off of the fumes of the Jose experience in the last few months. You know, they were top of the league at one point. They had beaten Manchester City. You know, they came to Anfield and in Jose's own words, they were quote unquote the better team, except they got beat in the 90th minute. However, they have now not won in four games and they are their their title contendership is looking a little ragged at this point. What do you make of this draw away to a Wolves team that has struggled to score goals in recent weeks? I I think it's kind of just regression to the mean when you look at the stats that they put out and the style of play that they they try to use. Like, there's only so many games in which you can set up to score goals on the counter and then defend, 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 score goals on the counter, defend, 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 before you get found out either by luck or by skill. And you can look at the game against Crystal Palace as another example of that, where, yes, it took Vincente Guaita literally probably making the save of his career to deny Spurs the what would have been a game-winning goal late on. But that's still a draw against a much, much inferior team. Wolves today, yes, they, they scored late on. But when you try to suck the life out of a game and then you get caught napping late on, you only have yourselves to blame. And we talked about this lineup that they put out before the match, and we said that this was a, an incredibly defensive starting 11, uh, with Son and Kane really the only attack-minded players on the pitch. Of course, Tangi and Dombele ended up getting involved with the goals, uh, or with, that, with the opening goal, but then he was given the hook in the 70th minute, despite being their best player on the day, and really the only player who looked to go forward outside of their wingbacks. This is a this was not a, a highlight of Jose Mourinho's uh, managerial tenure at at Spurs. I think just a just a an example of why you can't rely too heavily on being a counterattacking team um, when you have perhaps more attacking options on the bench that you didn't turn to. Yeah, this was this was some of the most negative soccer I've seen in a long time. It's so funny because there's some stat which eludes me right now, but that like. Almost every single goal Spurs have scored this year has either been scored or assisted by Son or Kane. And Mourinho looks at that, and I think most managers would look at that and say, hmm, I should probably try to find a way to bring some of my other players, you know, into the mix. You know, we're a little over-reliant. And Mourinho's like, no, 
In fact, I'm going to sacrifice an attacking player and only have Son and Kane this game. And then, of course, as soon as they scored a minute in, he was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're done. We're done here and we're closing up shop. I think the sub of Tangi and Domble, as you mentioned, Nathan, for Musa Sissoko was so emblematic of Mourinho. And Domble has was pretty much the only player moving the ball forward that entire game. And they brought on a defensive midfielder in response. And I think it was literally as soon as he made that where Wolves suddenly seemed to be slightly more on the ascendancy. A Wolves team, who it must be said, are not especially good at attacking, despite the fact that they have like pace all over the place. And so I think it's a little concerning that Mourinho doesn't have the confidence to take a game to Wolves, especially when they have them you know, on the ropes, literally 58 seconds into the game. Yeah, I would agree. And we saw Gareth Bale play on a rainy night at Stoke this week and score a pretty decent goal, you know, a pretty decent header from a, a pretty typical Mourinho goal, I would say. And I just think Mourinho needs to have a little bit more trust in those pieces that he brought in over the summer instead of just trying to kill the game outright because there are four games without a win. Confidence is low. Kane and Son aren't contributing together on the score sheet anymore. And he needs to come up with some sort of answer to at least, you know, galvanize this team offensively so that they can get a bit of confidence back going into 2021 and honestly get some some really good points return in a really difficult part of the fixture calendar. Yeah. And I mean, they have Fulham and Leeds coming up in a three day span this Wednesday and Saturday. There's definitely an opportunity for a team like Fulham who are playing with with no fear right now and a team like Leeds who are pretty much the kryptonite for a Jose Mourinho squad in my mind. No, so so this will this this Spurs team, I mean, they're in fifth place right now, but there are four teams within a point of them, City, Villa, Chelsea and Southampton. And it's entirely possible that Spurs drop down to 10th, you know, after the next match day or two. Yeah, and I just think the way that the Premier League is going this season, it is increasingly difficult for the big teams to hold on to leads in the era of COVID football, at least like slender leads. You know, Man City dropped points at home against West Brom. Liverpool dropped home, dropped points at home to West Brom. Uh, United dropped a lead away to uh, Leicester City this weekend. Uh, no team that is really contending for a title seems to be capable of holding on to the points. Like they seem to really need to be able to put the ball in the back of the net. So I think if Spurs are not willing to go forward, be adventurous and score goals, the second half of the season is going to be really difficult because I think, you know, the output of goals that we're seeing in the Premier League is going to end up being historic. And if Spurs can't continue to contribute to that, it's going to end up being a really tough slag for them in the second half of the year. And for whatever it's worth, I think that's the thing that separates Liverpool from the rest of the teams in the league. Because even when the results aren't going their way, they're still managing to pick up draws instead of losses. Um, and I think that's what's going to end up making the difference come season's end. I don't anticipate uh, I don't anticipate the Premier League being clinched, you know, in, in week 34 or 33 like it has been the past couple of seasons. Might be Gareth Bale time for Jose Mourinho. No, so I think, yeah, like they just have to, he just has to go for it, like... Don't change things up by going for like a back five. Okay. Change things up by playing like a really attacking four, two, three, one. Right? Like I want to see Mura. I want to see Bale. Give give me more Bergvine. Play Kane as like just a real out and out striker. Right? Yeah, Don't maybe play throw Harry a little, maybe throw a little deli in there. You know, like a little splash of deli. That's what I'm saying. Like just just go for it. Right. But he won't. 
I mean, we can say all these things, but he won't. We're, we're, we're dangerously close to Mourinho getting in fights with the media time. We're, like, getting there. Like, another loss or two in the next week or some more drop points. Suddenly, those Instagram captions are going to be a lot a lot meaner. <laughs> a lot more heated. He's, he's going to start cyberbullying his squad. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to start posting, like, meanly edited photos of Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher. Yeah, or, or he'll do something even more regressive. He'll like post pictures of like Deli Ali like missing passes in training and be like, shut the fuck up. He doesn't deserve to play. Right? <laughs> or, or, or Jose will just get on Twitter and or, vent his frustrations there. No, Jose is going to like Twitch stream training and see like, you see what I'm working with here? You see. <laughs> Jose, <laughs> he's going to like subscribe to my Twitter. Subscribe, subscribe. Give me like a subscribe to my Twitch. And I'll show you like Dele Ali blowing, <laughs> blowing it in training. No, no, no. It's like $10 donation and I'll yell at a player of your choice, right? Like, keep it coming. <laughs> He's going to do like a cameo. Oh, just... you know, one, one serious thing that we didn't talk about um, in regards to Spurs is the disgusting Harry Kane dive in the 90th minute. Harry Kane had a dive that was so bad that the referee didn't even go to VAR. And I believe it was Den Donker, or no, maybe it was Sice. It was Sice. It was immediately, Sice. immediately turned to him and went like, "Get up!" And he sort of just slouched away um, without without complaint. And it, it sort of adds on to the idea that we hinted at earlier this year when talking about his tendency to sort of you know do that tabletop move um, to jumping defenders. That he's a little bit of a dirty player sometimes, and I think that he'd be getting a lot more criticism for that um, if he were not the England captain and a good old boy. I also think you can extrapolate that as a positive and that this team is still fully behind Mourinho and his tactics, right? Like these results haven't uh, gone the way of like the team turning against him in any way. They're still trying to win games and get points in the Mourinho style. If you're a Spurs fan, is a really good thing to see. The fact that the team is still really buying into Mourinho's system. Yeah, dude, Hoodman Son is literally a soldier. There's no, there's no questioning of authority going on. Like, this team is, is ready to die for Mourinho. The question is, is Mourinho ready to actually let Spurs win? That is the big editorial question of the day. Yeah, I was just going to say, it seems like the common theme here is managers are killing their own teams. This doesn't make sense. Nobody wins. Well, somebody Nobody wins. wins. The other well, teams. yeah, the other teams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I think those are the highlights that we wanted to talk about on this show. Are there any other quick hits? Some I think that we might have missed. Uh, Aston Villa continue to be an enigma. Um, I watched their game against Palace in which Tyron Mings got sent off for two yellow cards, clear yellow cards, might I add, uh, in the span of six minutes. And then once down to 10 men, Villa proceeded to absolutely just dominate Crystal Palace, who after that Spurs result have had an absolutely terrible time drawing with West Ham, getting a touchdown scored in them by Liverpool and then a field goal against 10 man Villa. So Villa have an opportunity tomorrow to take points off of Chelsea. And I think that they will. Um, I think it's very possible that Villa beat Chelsea. I also think it's possible that Everton beat city um, who continue to whatever the opposite of amuse is um, yeah. put, put fans to sleep. I guess we should start. I, I guess we should we should talk for about Manchester City for a few minutes because Pep Guardiola debuted the uh, Emperor Palpatine coat yesterday. <laughs> so there was a very much some uh, some Death Star vibes that Guardiola was giving off, and I think Nathan hit on something there that I've kind of wanted to talk about, and that I think Manchester City low key might be the most boring team to watch in the Premier League right now. And credit to Guardiola because I think he's finally sorted out the defense. 
which has been a major issue for this team throughout, you know, the course of the beginning of the 2019-20 season and uh, throughout the beginning portion of this season when they lost uh, 5-2 to Leicester. It looks like Guardiola has really spent some time on the training ground sorting out the the defensive issues of this team. But I think that's also taken away from the the expressiveness that we have become so accustomed to to Manchester City and have just made them really clinical and boring, Caleb. I think they would be more exciting if they actually, you know, had a striker. I mean, Jesus has been kind of poor this year and Aguero has been in and out of the team. And so Guardiola's, you know, had to experiment with, you know, Ferran Torres this week in part because Jesus um, either has COVID or, or was contact traced, wasn't available. No, Jesus, a man named Jesus, tested positive for COVID on Christmas Day. There is perhaps nothing more biblical than that. No. I think this Manchester City team is starting to round into form, though. They do have, I think, the best defense in the league. They have one of the best defense. Yes, Yes, they do. They've conceded the fewest goals in the league, but they've also scored the fewest goals of any side in the top 10. Right, but I think... They also, of you know, most of the teams in the top ten, have like the biggest opportunity to start scoring more, right? Like, for instance, like Everton are probably scoring about as much as they can, right? Aston Villa are probably also maximizing their output. This Manchester City team is just waiting for Raheem Sterling to start piling in the goals. They're just waiting for Mares to find his scoring touch again. They're just waiting for you know Aguero in theory if he ever becomes fully fit so I think there's a lot of room for this city team to grow into the season and yes now they're boring but I don't think we should count them out yet especially because you know they have a game in hand if they win it then they would be in third place right now on 29 points right so like they're not that far off the top as you'd expect even though they aren't you know on pace to score 110 goals like they normally do yeah, and they, they they suck the life out of the game in a completely different manner to the way in which Spurs suck the life out of games. They just sort of suffocate teams to death with sideways and backwards passes, which, in a manner of speaking, is sort of the Pep Guardiola way, although oftentimes that comes with an increased end product. But certainly getting Aguero back, if he does come back eventually, um, or maybe even bringing in a striker in this upcoming window, wouldn't surprise me either because Ferran Torres, despite having a, a lot of promise, is likely not the long-term solution to their, their striking woes. But indeed, they are a team that could pick up some serious points um, as they have a very daunting next three games against Everton, Chelsea, and then United in the semifinals of the Carabao Cup. Anything else? Or do we want to leave it at that before realizing that we have you know another 28 games going on this week? I know, it's ridiculous. It's really coming thick and fast. No, right. Pretty much everything we've talked about today could be completely irrelevant by the time you, our listener, listen to our podcast. All right, well, that was our take on the festive fixtures so far, Boxing Day through December 27th. We are glad that you could finally join us. We're glad to be back in your ears. Ooh, that's a little bit more creepy sounding than I intended it to be. (laughs) Okay, well, either way, it is good to be back. Around the virtual roundtable discussing some Premier League soccer once again. We look forward to another busy week of fixtures. We will be back towards the end of the week to recap the events that were. But until that point, I have been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. 
Nathan Strauss. And let me just say, it is a pleasure to have big Sam Allardyce back in our lives once again in the Premier League. It wouldn't be corner kick without big Sam. I've been Nicky Vinden. We already did that. (laughs) Oh, I did? Big Sam increasing the number of chins to manager ratio by about eight. I know. Listen, more chins is certainly not a bad thing in this life, let me tell you. Either way, that has been corner kick. That has I thought, been our I thought you were going to say, I've been Nick Vinden again. <laughs> <laughs> For the third consecutive outro, it's like being at a Jewish family event. Yes. Oh, my God. All right, let's just get out of here. <laughs>